Hi, this is Jim Labedo, and I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you'd have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue, and we provide onboarding programs that get them doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. Welcome to our program tonight. A couple resources before we get started I want to make you aware of. You can go out to our website, biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-Z, talkradioshow.com. And if you're in sales, you'll probably want to log on to our sales quick coach. It's under the key insights tab. That's two-minute timeouts to improve your performance. It's a weekly blog we post out there. You can also register to receive that in your email. There's also another blog under Key Insights called Hire the Best, insights on hiring A players in today's marketplace. So if you're a hiring manager, you probably want to tune into that. You can follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040, and you can like us on Facebook. Also, when you go out to the website, you'll notice there's a guest gallery now, and we have all of our guests that we have podcasts for have a link on our website and you can click on that and it'll take you to their information directly and you can also click on it and take you directly to the podcast so i know a lot of you tune in and listen to our program a lot of you listen to the podcast all those are available out on the website and we've cleaned it up to make it easy to navigate and easy to find i think you'll find that to be a great resource so whether the topic is leadership the topic is sales change organization, growth, financial stability, all those things that probably keep you up at night as you work in your business. There's some resources out there, and I think you'll like seeing those. All right. Next week, we're excited. Pat Zagarmi, who's with the Ken Blanchard Organization, is going to join us here on BizTalk, and she's going to talk about her book, Who Killed Change? So if you're driving change inside an organization and you want to know what's going to kill it, Tune in to Pat Sagarmi. She'll be with us next week on the topic of who killed change. It dawned on me the other day that I've been auditioning for most of my life in different situations. I auditioned for plays in high school. I auditioned for varsity offensive tackle position. And every week I auditioned to keep my position on the varsity team. They had to wrestle off every week and you had to defend your position to stay on the varsity team. Today, I audition with prospects about my training and consulting or recruiting services. And to a certain extent, we audition for our guests we invite in our program. Because if we're not viable, they're probably not interested in, in joining us. But when I started my professional career and was seeking employment, I stopped auditioning and started interviewing. Why did the auditioning stop and when did the interviewing start? I wondered the other day. Because right now, sitting here tonight, it doesn't make sense to me. The roles I auditioned for were for specific requirements. The offensive football team I played for had a strong tackle position. As the name would imply, you had to be strong. You also had to be quick because it was a pulling tackle position. I auditioned for that position, and I got it because I had a quick first step. But I had to prove it every week. And, of course, we watched game film to make sure that I was making those improvements. Interviewing is the weakest form of identifying if a person can execute on what the job requires, especially when you're interviewing a salesperson. Chances are they're very good. 
that you were never taught about how to properly interview someone. Because of that, you may ask the same question everyone else asked the sales candidate, and they have developed responses to those questions. So they're basically telling you what you want to hear. Add that to the fact that a salesperson usually are taught to sell. Typically, they sell you on the interview, and they get the job, and that's the last sale that they make. Why not bring auditioning back as part of the screening process? I mentioned that to a client the other day. I was talking with a company president, and he was lamenting that he had five people turn over in the inside sales position in his company. This was in the last year. Because of this, he had never been able to build momentum with the thousands of leads he had developed. He stated in frustration, they just won't pick up the phone. I stated, well, why don't you add an addition to your candidate selection process? I went on to explain to him, put them in a room with the phone list of names and phone numbers. Give them your introductory script and then turn them loose for an hour and see how many times they pick up the phone and how many times they connected with the decision maker. Record the calls and listen to them and gauge how the candidate responds to people being heard on the phone. It's a pretty easy audition to do. and In the state of Iowa, you can actually record phone calls. and It is legal to do that with only one party knowing so if you're listening to this and you're wondering if it's legal in your state, check that out first because listening back is you get to hear that audition. Or sometimes you have phone systems where you can just listen in. Sales is a challenging profession because most of the time you're battling yourself. Being organized, being focused, being brave, being persistent, being smart, being adaptable, being quick, being humble are all tough requirements. All those characteristics can be identified in a one-hour phone audition. So I told my client to set it up and see who is left standing at the end of that hour. You'd be surprised how many people just fidget and get around to you know, making those calls rather than getting on the phone and just you know, picking up the phone and making them. The number one pushback when I give this recommendation is, well, Jim, we don't want to burn any of our leads, as if the leads were finite. And I told my client, call everybody in Kansas City, meaning if your leads are just in central Iowa, call everybody in Kansas City. And he says, well, what happens if they actually, you know, connect and want to do something? I said, refer them over to somebody in Kansas City. This is not that hard to think out. Plus, the chances are you're not going to get yourself in trouble. So add auditions into your screening process. You'll be surprised that people can talk about what they can do, but can they actually do what you're asking them to do? One of our positions in our company requires the fact that you're able to write very concise and brief messages. You have to be able to put together PowerPoints. So I ask all of our final candidates, whenever they're auditioning with us, is to send me a PowerPoint about yourself. And let's see how that looks. It's just too critical in one role we have that they not have those skills. They have to have them. Okay, speaking of skills, are leaders born or are leaders trained? Are there natural leaders or can you become a leader? And if you're a card-carrying member of the Control Freak Club, like I am, the thought of doing nothing probably scares the heck out of you. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about, as a leader, how to stop overmanaging becoming a great leader. Our guest is Jay Keith Moran, and he's going to talk about his new book, Do Nothing. So if you're trying to get your team to follow you, if you're trying to get your team to the next level, if you want to improve your chances of your career advancing 
or hitting the objectives you want to hit inside your business. Stay tuned. I think Keith is going to have some interesting insights for all of us. I was thinking about our program tonight because my wife is actually out of town. Fortunate enough to have a home in another location where it's a lot warmer than Iowa. So the reason I didn't join her this week is because my calendar is booked. We always have a full day's worth of internal meetings on Monday, and the rest is just off and running. I have meetings to go to. I have clients to visit with. I have projects to bring forward. Unfortunately, in my company, in my role, I get to travel a lot, which means I spend a lot of time at the bookstores and airports. And usually when I'm going through, I look for what catches my eye. And I was in the Las Vegas airport when I saw J. Keith Moran's book, Do Nothing. Now, given my schedule this week and being a leader of my company, I thought, man, this is a guy I've got to talk to because I'd sure like to have nothing to do on my calendar. So if books told, sold titles, this is probably one of the better ones, Do Nothing, How to Stop Overmanaging and Become a Great Leader. J. Keith Bernian is an award-winning professor of the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University and an active consultant trainer to some of the top companies around the world. His research has been cited in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Ford's magazines. Jay Keith, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm a card-carrying member of the Control Freak Club. <laughs> boy, do you, boy, do you need my book. Holy cow. <laughs> so, you know, maybe we can, I can just sit on the couch tonight. You can tell me all the stuff that I have wrong insight on. I'm but, happy to do that. Do you know when you mentioned you've got a day full of meetings tomorrow? The first two questions that came to my mind, can you cut the time of those meetings in half? Yes. Well, so why not do that? Number two, do you have to run all of those meetings, or can somebody else be in charge, someone else on your team? I only run one of them. Okay. I'm a participant in the other ones. Can, can somebody on your team run the one that you're planning to run? here's where you have to (laughs) let go here's the oh you're killing me man come on i mean (laughs) but no one can run that beating oh i got that sales meeting the afternoon keith i've been a sales manager most of my life before i started this company man i'm pretty good at it no one runs that meeting better than me so does is there an agenda for the meeting yes so why do you need to run it why not put somebody else in charge of running the meeting? You won't have to be the facilitator. You won't have to be the pusher. You can be an observer, and you can actually observe skills in your team that you never knew existed. You're killing me, man. You're killing me. I'm giving you an easy idea. <laughs> cut, your time, cut your meetings in half. Don't, don't run them for hours. I mean, how many people do you know who love meetings? Hardly anybody. Almost none. Right. Why do we not like meetings? They last too long. We don't learn anything. We don't accomplish very much. So why not cut your time in half, run the meetings in half the time you've run them in before, let somebody else run them. By all means, have an agenda because you want to keep on track. But you might find that you've got a team member who actually can run the meeting better than you can. Yeah. And you just have never checked. No, you're right. You're right. So what what attracted me, now your title, 
if if, if you'll bear with me, I know you know sure. this, but for the audience, because I I don't necessarily like to read from books, but this was a good opening segment from your book. It's on the preface, and I want to share that with the audience because this is what got me hooked. This book is about all your natural tendencies and when they can lead you astray. Most of our natural tendencies are pretty wonderful. They have repeatedly helped us get out of tight spots, and the bottom line, they've allowed us to survive and thrive. The problem is that some of our natural tendencies are no longer effective. Absolutely. Think about it. Think about this, Jim. Think about our ancestors 500,000, a million years ago. They had trouble finding food. Do we have trouble finding food? Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. I have trouble yeah. finding the right aisle in the grocery store, but other than that. I mean, but seriously, you know, with with a Starbucks on every corner, it's not hard for us to find food. Number two, we don't have to worry about security so much. Our ancestors were enormously at threat for all sorts of reasons. In fact, the only reason that we're alive is because our ancestors were active. They worked hard to make sure that they had security for themselves and their family, and they had sustenance. We don't have to work so hard for those things anymore, but because evolution is slow, we're programmed to be active. Let me give you an example, a couple examples. Do you know how long a male lion sleeps every night? No, I do not. 20 hours. How about a gorilla, somebody a little bit closer to us in the phylogenetic scale? No idea. 13.7. How about a chimpanzee? 9.6. So what are we doing by pushing ourselves so much? We're actually creating stress, making busy work, doing things we don't need to do. I mean... Here's something I can ask you as well, just about your own company, Jim. Could you save some time tomorrow by cutting your meetings in half? And then write down all the things you do during the week and ask yourself, how many of these are absolutely necessary for me to do? I bet you'll find a whole lot that are not necessary for you to do and you're doing them means that your team members can't, which limits their growth, limits your time to do the things you should be doing. Again, it's a simple method to check yourself, see what you can stop doing, and stop doing it and hand it off to people who actually might appreciate the confidence you display in them by giving them challenges and responsibilities that you don't need any longer. Keith, I think that's very good insight. When we come back, I want to dive into this a little bit deeper because your concept is easy and at the same time probably difficult to execute on because of our natural tendencies. That's correct. And first of all, Jake, so I refer to you as Keith, Jay Keith. Am I Keith saying you? Just fine. Yeah. Keith is Keith fine. Is great. Yeah. Mernian, am I saying your last name correctly? No one ever gets it, Jim. Uh, I answer to many names, but correct pronunciation is Mernian, but Mernian. no problem. Okay. Yep. Well, thank you for that. Well, Lebedo's not the easiest thing in the world to say, so I, I, I try to be sens- uh, sensitive. Okay. So we left off. We're talking about our natural tendencies that tend to work against us. But but the the preface to that is something I thought was really good insight in your book about when you take over a role, 
uh, your new role. I become a new leader, let's say. Right. And the stuff that got me to that position, because I'm assuming I had to execute and perform at some level really well, that got me into this leadership role. And you say you have to really forget all that stuff because it won't serve you well as a leader. Absolutely. So, so imagine your own situation or many people who are great salespeople and move up to be a sales manager. They shouldn't be out there selling. That's what their sales team is for. As a leader, you have to stop doing what got you to the leadership position, which, again, uh, as you noted earlier, this is incredibly hard because our natural tendencies are to do what we were rewarded for. We were rewarded for sales or high-tech people who move up to manage high-tech groups or rewarded for doing high-tech very well. And not only have you done it well, you probably like it. Moving up means stopping that, and in particular, your job becomes two-pronged. Number one, you want to facilitate the performance of your team members. Do everything you can to help them perform better, and you want to orchestrate their activities to make sure things happen when they should. But here's a little intuition. Imagine you as the leader of a team and every member of your team living up to their maximum potential. What would your life be like? Oh, so much easier. Oh, it'd be amazingly easier. You'd have time to think. You'd have time to plan. You'd have time to make contacts with you know new customers whom you've never had a chance to contact before. What you want to do is be a facilitator and an orchestrator, not somebody who does the work themselves. So almost like, if we want to use the metaphor, you're the orchestra leader. You're the conductor. No question you should be the conductor. And you you also have to get down off your podium as well and go and talk to your violinist, talk to your cellist, ask them, what can I do to make your job easier? And do everything you can to make their jobs easier because if their jobs are easier, they're going to be more productive. Your team is going to be more productive. And that's exactly what you're looking for. You write in your book, The Five Natural Problems of Individuals as Leaders. Share with our audience what those five are. Oh, Jim, you're killing me. You read my book yesterday, (laughs) and I don't have it handy. Go ahead. You read them out. Go for it. Okay. So if I'm reading this correctly in your book, you're talking about empathy gap, focus on own actions, transparency, double interact, and egocentrism. 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 Correct. the last one. So egocentrism is a big fancy word that basically says we live in our own skin, we see with our own eyes, we hear with our ears. We don't do very well at putting ourselves in other people's shoes. You know, the problem with putting yourself in other people's shoes, which, you know, we've all heard for a hundred years, you've got to get out of your own and you've got to get into theirs. And both tasks are difficult because we wear our own shoes all the time. So, you know, watching a football game with my son this afternoon, he's rooting for one of the teams, tackle him. Why didn't you tackle him? You know, well, he wasn't in the tackler's shoes. He was in his own shoes. And his own shoes said, you know, I would have made the tackle. What's wrong with you? There are other contingencies that influence people that we just can't be in tune with unless we work really hard at it. I like to think of leaders as being mini-CEOs. And the first rule for many CEOs is to walk the floor. 
get out there, talk to people, get in touch with them personally, because you have to know people personally. You have to know what they care about, what their career plans are, what their family contingencies are, and you want to ask them what, they can, what you can do to help them perform better. Because when you ask that question, very few people ask for a nuclear power plant. They ask for something that you often can provide, and then when you can provide it, everybody's better off. One of your solutions what you're talking about against those five natural tendencies is to focus on them. And I know, Keith, yep. that, that you do a lot of consulting. Yep. And, again, that's counterintuitive because to get where you needed to be, you had to focus on yourself. This is what you I did. need to get done. Here's what I had to you do. You did, absolutely. So, but now you're a leader. And well, but give me the, the story. Uh, here's you know, one of the maxims that I've presented in this book that comes from those five natural tendencies is what I call the leadership law. And the leadership law is based on the notion, a couple questions we could ask. What's more important, your actions as a leader or your team's reactions? Most wise people say your team's reactions. You can be a lousy, you know, you can make lousy choices, but if your team reacts well, you're a hero. So your focus as a leader should not be on your own actions and what you do it should be on the reactions that you want. And if you can focus on them, focus on their likely reactions, and build your actions to achieve the reactions you want, you are way ahead of the game. Can you share an example of that, Keith? Give me. Sure. You know, one of my favorite examples that presses my hot buttons is the financial crisis that started. The roots of that started in early 2000s in Washington when people had the great idea that more Americans should be able to own their own homes. Now, as an idea, that's not a terrible idea, except when you think about what reactions are necessary for that to happen. Two things for borrowers who couldn't borrow before. Number one, you have to reduce their down payment. Number two, you have to reduce their monthly payment. Well, now you have subprime loans. What happens when you have subprime loans? They're much riskier. They all of a sudden get seen by Wall Street as a potential product that can be bundled, and they bundle subprime loans and sell them. And now you've got companies granting loans to people that they're no longer responsible for because all those loans are now being bundled and sold. I don't know about you, Jim, but I'm really unhappy about the financial crisis because it could have been avoided if we looked at what people's natural reactions are likely to be to new policies. And this was a new policy that was doomed from the beginning and has led to all sorts of people who paid their taxes, who paid their mortgage, who've been responsible, but have still lost their jobs, lost their homes, lost their pensions. If we focused on people's reactions, we could have avoided that. So one of the things, if I hear you correctly as a leader, we want to focus on what our reactions are team members, coworkers, employees, however you want to work it. Absolutely. That. How do you want your team members to react? So when it, um, so either a, a customer complaint situation or interaction between each other, you're looking for that positive outcome that you'd like to see. Absolutely. So, you know, if you've got a customer who's complaining, what you want is a customer sales representative who's supportive, who's friendly, who asks questions, who gets information, who treats people with respect and 
you know, provides a reasonable solution if they can. You know, the last thing you need is somebody getting angry because somebody's making a wild, insane claim, which some people do. If you can walk people through it calmly, you get the kinds of reactions you want. You don't damage the company. You don't damage your reputation. And, you know, you can even come out of those situations positively. So what advice do you give somebody who's in a leadership role when you talk about the solution? One of your principles of, uh, you know, learn what's going on or take it from the team member's perspective. Again, because it's yep. not easy to, so what, is there a question you should ask yourself for them? Is there a technique that you teach? How do you get well, people in that moment? Well, what you want to do is get to know people as well as you can. You don't need to be their friends, but you need to know what they care about, and you need to care about them. And here's one of the most important things you want to find out as a leader. You need to find out what your team members' goals at work are. For instance, you might have someone on your team who wants to come to work as late as possible, do as little as possible, earn as much as possible, and vacation as much as possible. It's not unusual. People sometimes don't love their jobs and are only doing them so that they can do other things outside of their jobs. You also might have someone on your team who wants your job. That's also not unusual, but you better know what people's goals are. You don't want to get those two people confused because you want to give challenging work to the person who wants your job, and you want to see if you can find something that will give your less motivated person pride because if you can find something that they'd be proud to do, they're more likely to do it. It's very motivating. Well, thank you for that insight. There's a couple other things that I thought would be counterintuitive to what sure. we, we hear. So let's dive into those for a second. For example, uh, you say trust more. Yeah. And in the traditional sense, usually the approach is people have to earn my trust. Correct. And, but you go the other way. You Absolutely. say, so how does that work? So here's how it works. Let's imagine that you're going to hire someone for a new position. I mean, by the way, I love your idea of auditioning. Because then you get to see someone in action, and you get more information about them. Let's imagine that you have quite, you've done your homework, you've got a lot of information about a new employee, you have letters of reference that say that they're trustworthy, they're conscientious, they're committed, they're dedicated, they're smart, they're you know, creative, a variety of positives. Give people a chance. See what they can do. Don't you know, provide enough rope where you will hang yourself or them. But the most interesting situation I, I like to think about is when you've been promoted to lead a team that's already in existence and is already performing well. Far too often, leaders in those situations will give their team members small tasks kind of as a test to see if they can trust them and to find out if they're going to perform well. What an insult, right? Yeah, absolutely. You come into a new team. Well, here's, here's also the intuition, Jim. Have you ever been trusted on a job more than you anticipated? Yes. And how did you respond? It made me pay a lot more attention. <laughs> it does. And, and how about your work effort? Oh, twice as much. So I've been asking professionals this question for eight years. Now, all my audiences are professionals. They're executives and, right. 
executive MBAs and other folks. So I don't meet everyone in the world. But professionals, I've been asking the question for eight years, and your answer is the only answer I have ever gotten. So why not, if you're taking over a qualified team that has already shown that they can perform well, why not trust each person a little more than they anticipated? Do your homework, find out what they've been working on, trust them more. How are they going to react? Well, I think the reactions are not only going to be like yours. They're going to step up to try and show the person who's trusted them that they're worthy of their trust. But they're also likely to go home and tell their family and friends, I got a new boss today who trusted me more than the old boss, and I worked with the old boss for three years. People want to be trusted. Yeah. You know, you, you don't want, again, you've got to do your homework. You've got to keep your eyes open. You can't give someone a six-month job when you've never worked with them before and expect them to come back with perfect performance six months later. But do your homework and trust people to do the right thing and trust people to do more. And when they know that you have given them that opportunity and they're professionals and they care about their work, they're likely to react just the same way you did. Well, and I, as you, you know, said that, I'm thinking that we could probably trust more, but at the same time, it doesn't mean you're, you're giving up accountability or you're giving up reviewing what had got done. Of course not. Of course not. I mean, you know, you have weekly staff meetings, right? And, Check out what people are doing. Have them provide reports. Give us an update. What are the sales numbers? Dot dot dot. That that's a straightforward part of many many businesses. So it's rare where you would let someone go unmonitored for long periods of time. That doesn't make sense, and they don't expect it either. Keith, we know from the introduction you're a professor at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, and at the same time. It appears some of your concepts are counter to what we're taught in traditional management. Well, maybe back when I was there, maybe it's all changed now. But how did you come about understanding what your understanding is talking about today and looking at these natural tendencies? So I've been teaching leadership for a long time. I've had a wonderful opportunity. The Kellogg School is a fantastic place to work. And it also gives me the opportunity to talk to hundreds and hundreds of executives. So I love to talk to them about their jobs. I love to ask them questions like, do any of you have cool, calm, quiet days at work, ever? And they always say no. You know, they're always out there fighting fires and, you know, trying to make sure that the dike is plugged and you, you name it. The amazing part, Jim, is in 1974, one of my colleagues and friends wrote a book called The Nature of Managerial Work. So this was almost 30, 40 years ago, almost 40 years ago. And it's exactly the same picture that people are talking about today. Work is fragmented. They're pulled in multiple directions. There's not enough time in the day. So I've started asking different kinds of questions, suggesting different kinds of methods that people are willing to try because, you know, they're at their wit's end anyway. And they clearly seem to work. Let me give you just one more insight in this. I love to ask groups, are any of you out there as leaders doing nothing? I get about one hand raised out of every hundred people. And whenever somebody raises their hand and says, yeah, I'm doing nothing, everybody looks at them and says, how do you get away with it? You know, I mean, they're all jealous and almost angry. And I ask them, 
okay, the big question is, how do you accomplish that? They always have the same answer. I have a great team. Mm. So we got to get ourselves out of it. I mean, we are kind of an ego-driven culture in the U.S. and Western culture as well. Think about the team first. Think about what they need to accomplish the job. See what you can do to help them achieve the job, and then you can do less. So if you've not been uncomfortable yet about Keith's <laughs> concepts, uh, we're about to make you more uncomfortable because he goes on his book to say, de-emphasize profits. Oh, come on, Keith. Now you're really killing me. I know I am. So um, <laughs> the, the thing is this. As a leader, what you want to be doing is doing things as well as you can, doing them the right way. I'll give you a little analogy. If you play golf, everybody has good days on the golf course, and some of those good days start after you've played three, four, maybe five holes, and you're thinking to yourself, man, am I doing really great. All I have to do is keep this up, and I might have the best score I've ever had. Do you play golf, Jim? Absolutely. Not that well, but I play so, it. So when you have the, that kind of thought on the fourth or fifth hole, I, I have to just keep what I'm doing what I'm doing, and I'll have a great score. What ha- and you start focusing on your score, what happens to your round? Yeah. <laughs> the My harder I try, the worse is, it becomes. It just goes all to heck in a handbag. You got right? it. You got it. Because what you're looking for is outcomes. You're not looking for what you should be doing. And what you should be doing is the same thing you have been doing. Focus on one shot at a time. Be calm. Let your muscles do the work. What you want to do with your teams and your organizations is do less. Think about how to do what you're doing as well as possible and who among your team can do it. And keep doing it really well. You'll be ahead of the game. And people who are distracted by profits are not going to gain as many as you do. So you're saying if, if we're chasing profits, we may never get there. Can you say that again, Jim? I missed it. So what you're saying is if, if we're just if our focus is chasing that profit line, we may never get there. Absolutely. You know, if if you do things right, good things will happen. You know, do the fundamentals. It's like every coach teaches their players. Do everything to the best of your ability, victories will follow. Well, then share with our audience your insight then, because you write about ignoring performance goals. And I thought one of the roles of a leader is to not only set performance goals, but also monitor those. So where are you coming from on that? Yeah, so performance goals are fine. The problem is we pay too much attention to them. And, you know, if you've got to hit a number every month or every quarter, that really becomes a focus that distracts you from doing the right thing. It also, as a leader, it distracts you from focusing on learning. Because as you and your team are moving along through life, you really have to be learning new ways to do things. Because if you don't, your competitors are going to be learning and you're going to be left in the dust. So have performance goals, absolutely. But don't pay so much attention to them. Realize that a leader has to focus on learning for them, for both them and their team to be successful in the long run. You pick up a new client today in your consulting business. You're yes. alone with that leader. Keith, the one piece of advice you're giving them today is what? So for me, it's don't think it's so hard. So many leaders are promoted and they think because they've been promoted, they're going to have to work harder, do more. That's exactly the wrong way to look at things. 
Leadership doesn't have to be so hard. Let other people do the job. You just have to facilitate and orchestrate. If people want to learn more about your concepts or follow what you do, how would they do that? KeithMurnian.wordpress.com is my webpage. And, you know, I have a irregular blog. And, you know, they can sign up for a course at Kellogg as well. Keith, is there one question I should have asked you tonight that I haven't asked you? Yeah. So, Jim, the, the biggest question for me, I think, revolves around this notion of, of effort and getting beyond our natural tendencies and actually caring about people more, trusting them more, learning more about them, helping them succeed. Because if you can help your team members succeed, most of the time their goals are going to be aligned with yours in some form or another. And a little orchestration, man, help your team members achieve their goals. You'll be amazed at what your team can accomplish far more than it can if you're on the front lines doing more work than you should. Keith, thanks for being on our program. We greatly enjoyed it. Jim, thank you for the opportunity. It was great. Well, maybe we can get you to go to Congress and teach them a little bit of leadership here. Lately. I wish I had been there a few <laughs> years ago, I'll tell you. <laughs> Absolutely. So I enjoyed it, Keith. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. Our guest tonight has been Keith Mernian. His book is Do Nothing, How to Stop Overmanaging to Become a Great Leader. And what's sorely lacking today is leadership. So when you get a chance to do that, step up to the plate and follow what Keith is talking about. You will serve not only yourself, but everybody else around you much better. This or other BizTalk podcasts may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com, where you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040 and like us on Facebook. If you want to learn the strategies finding and getting performance out of A-player salespeople, contact Performance Group by calling 800-950-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net. This has been your host, Jim Lovato.